The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. In a way, you can think of them sort of as more aggressive forms of dream catchers. They're not just catching bad dreams, they're actually defending against them and, and chopping them up. That was Kasia Spakovska talking about demonology in ancient Egypt. Well, for me, uh, shipwrecks are special sites because quite often, I mean, they are a time capsule. Um, it wasn't meant to happen. So what you find is exactly the moment, a snapshot in time, when that ship sank and wrecked. And that was Dan Pascoe discussing the excavations of a fascinating 17th century ship. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're going to be speaking to two experts who are taking part in the Being Human Festival. It's a UK-wide celebration of the humanities, which runs from the 17th to 25th of November, and is led by the School of Advanced Study at the University of London, in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the British Academy. Now, first up, we'll hear from Kasia Spakovska, who is Professor of Egyptology at the University of Swansea and Director of the Ancient Egyptian Demonology Project, 2nd millennium BCE. And this project was the subject of her conversation with our Deputy Editor, Charlotte Hodgman. So, Kasia, um, I think probably first off, where where did your interest and, and research into demonology in ancient Egypt begin? It actually began when I was working on uh, dreams and nightmares in ancient Egypt. And I was struck by the fact that, in fact, for most of pharaonic history, there was more references to nightmares than there were good dreams. And there was a whole lot of um, references to beings that would cause nightmares. And um, I started thinking, wow, nobody's really looked at this aspect. Everybody talks sort of about the big gods, but there's literally thousands of these beings that are sort of not human, not animal, not quite God, but in between that uh, the Egyptians um, both feared and also appealed to for help. And what would you define as as a demon in this sense? That's kind of the broad term that you use to describe these these, uh... Uh, these things. Things, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, I had to come up with a word for them. It's, it's, and and I, and I hit demons mainly because it's, it's popular. Unfortunately, demon today has a real negative connotation. And what, what I mean by it is just again those beings. They're not major gods, so they didn't have a cult or a temple, and they're not people and they're not animals. They're more like what we might think of as gremlins or imps or lech. Capricorns or fairies, those sort of in-between things. And uh, for the Egyptians, they were, like I said, they could act in a way that was not very nice, like coming and causing nightmares or 
um, giving you stomach aches or headaches. And uh, they were oftentimes blamed for those things that have no obvious source. Uh, but they were also called upon to help. So they were used to help you in times of illness, help you when you were anxious or frightened. Uh, again, something like uh, angels almost, you could think of them almost. Or what I like to think of is, is I watch a lot of sci-fi. So think of Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm, okay, okay, right. And <laughs> um- so they were quite. They were all quite well known because I mean the the website that you sort of list many of these these entities on um, has something like you say four thousand different demons on them, and that's a that's a huge amount. Did people know about all these different things? Yeah, um, the reason that today we don't know them as well is because these are things that were appealed to in daily life, so they don't appear on big temple walls. Well, they do a little bit, but they're they're sort of in in the corners. They're not. They're not the ones that have big cults, but they do appear on objects and many objects that don't have any writing on them. So they were used by people and uh, they were just drawn on them uh, in a way. So, um, yeah, they were they the same ones don't appear at different time periods. Some become popular at various times and there's certain times when bunches of them suddenly appear. And that's of interest to me, too. It's like, what's happening that makes these suddenly be invented or created? And uh, they come in, oh, my gosh, such a range of shapes. So they're, they're, I mean, you could call them monsters, but again, that has a sort of negative connotation. They have, uh, they're oftentimes hybrid creatures. So they'll be made up of parts of humans and animals or even objects. So there's a huge, huge range. And many of them, again, have no name, which is why uh, today we don't know them as well, because we don't know what to call them. Would they have had names at the time? I'm not even sure. Sometimes they might simply have referred to them as a group, so as just guardians. So, for example, we have one image. It's basically a walking sun disk. It's like a brown disk with legs. And I doubt that would have had a name. But just drawing it on an object would uh, give you protection. Okay. And were any of these um, these demons, were they linked to any of the, the gods and the goddesses that, that we know about? Some of them are. And some of them uh, are associated with um, various gods. Some of the ones who are quite nasty and actually cause plague, for example, were plague and pestilence, were blamed on uh, um, beings that that came from Sekhmet, messengers of Sekhmet. And Sekhmet is a lioness-headed goddess who was associated with both destruction as well as medicine and helping people as well. So those are the, the minions, her minions in a way. Others, uh, some of them become gods later on, and some of them start off as gods and sort of become uh, demonized and become uh, play a different role later on. There are some also that have names, but we don't have images that go with them. <laughs> and we have and we have a few that we have both the name and the image. And and did these? Um, I mean, how important were they in everyday life? Um, you know, did they did they feature daily in people's lives? 
Absolutely. So, for example, in one time period of ancient Egypt, the, the uh, New Kingdom, they appear on the ancient Egyptian version of a pillow. The Egyptians slept on headrests, which are still used today in parts of Africa and Asia, and they raise the head off the ground. And what would happen is both the part that supports the head itself and the base and sometimes the columns could have representations of some of these demons on them. So again, these were surrounding them while they were sleeping, protecting them. And, and they oftentimes, by the way, carry knives. So they carry weapons on them to really protect the person who is vulnerable. In a way, you can think of them sort of as more aggressive forms of dream catchers. They're not just catching bad dreams. They're actually defending against them and, and chopping them up. <laughs> and can we see fashions, you know, throughout ancient Egyptian history? Can we see certain uh, demons becoming more popular and featuring more in on these sort of, you know, tablets and, and, and things like that? Absolutely. And then some disappear and some only appear at certain time periods. So, for example, in the Middle Kingdom, which is an earlier time period, roughly, oh, I don't know, 1800 BC, let's say, there was a series of objects that began to be created that were made of hippopotamus tusk. And they're actually decorated with a whole parade of these demon creatures. And and uh, the walking sun disc is one of them. Uh, you have um, vultures with knives and scepters and with knives and baboons and creatures that are part lion, part um, bird with wings and part um, snake and even with human heads. And they appear then. And some of them don't appear in the later ones. The walking sun disc, for example, doesn't appear in the New Kingdom. Others change what they do. So in this earlier time period, they sort of parade around and they're depicted as sort of in a stately procession as walking. And then in the New Kingdom, some of the same ones almost identical to the ones that you see on the tusks, appear in very, very different sort of um, uh, uh, poses. So instead of just walking in a stately procession, they're actually dancing and leaping, and they're very vibrant. And instead of holding one knife in the hand, they actually have a knife and a spear and holding snakes and even having snakes coming out of their mouths and even, even knives on their feet which is something I haven't seen in any other culture anywhere. That's fascinating. I mean, who's drawing these? You know, who's determining what these these things look like, and and you know, and ch and changing the images? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. I mean, these are must. It became an industry, so it was likely uh, because they had a ritual use and a religious use that the priesthood would be involved in that, and. Um, who knows how they come out of their heads? That's that's <laughs> another interest. Like in a way, it's almost like they're making things that were accessible to the kings and rulers, and making them available to the people. At least that's how. Like I think of the walking sun disc. So it sort of anthropomorphizes a sort of more abstract concept and makes it more accessible, if that makes sense at all. And uh, they range in design and shape and how well they're drawn. But certainly it had to have been probably the priesthood came up with them.
Mm, okay. These demons, were they thought to sort of manifest physically? Did people actually see them or were they were they purely sort of, you, you know, you, you just felt their presence or, or they, you know, how they acted towards you? Oftentimes they're conceived of sort of as invisible creatures and all you actually see is the effect. So the negative ones, again, uh, that cause diseases, for example, you won't necessarily, you know, see all your them, but what you'll see is the physical manifestation. So for example, if you start breaking out in boils, what's causing this? Is something trying to get out? You know, it's pus or or bleeding problems or, you know, headache. It feels like there's something in your head, um, you know, pounding sometimes. And, and uh, so I think it was their way of making it more tangible so you could deal with it kind of sort of if you... If you make something that you're you're afraid of, if you give it a name or draw it, then maybe it makes it seem like you can deal with it more easily. And the same the same in reverse, you know. I mean, even even today, people have teddy bears and things and things they hold on to to sort of, you know, when they're nervous and worried and and it's just having it there. I think would have been been a been a help what did people do to um either kind of invoke these these demons or to kind of keep the harmful effects at bay what could people do well you could either again use these um objects which sort of acted as spells in themselves and then you could also recite a spell or have a priest recite one for you um by the way these also were used in the afterlife so after you die as well. So we have um, this, uh, the, the afterlife was sort of conceived of as this area where only those who belonged should be able to get into. If you transgress against the gods or the king, you're not allowed in. And so the ways and the doorways and the gateways through into the afterlife were guarded by a whole bunch of these guys and and what you had to do to get past them varied for some of them you had to know their name so that's oftentimes enough if you know somebody's name then you have power over them or what they do or what they sound like so some of these also occurred as figurines as well or you know decorated vessels for protection and and that very act of it being there would call it into being others would have a special ritual so those um, hippopotamus tusks, we think, were used to draw a circle in the in the ground around the vulnerable person. We think that they were used when women were giving birth, for example, and also to surround the child after, because because children obviously are very prone to diseases and problems that seem to come out of nowhere. So since they come out of nowhere, they must be blamed on a hostile demon. And therefore, you can use an equally powerful, beneficial entity to guard you from them. And and was it possible to be possessed by a demon? We don't have really evidence of that, except in the sense that, again, these were sometimes referred to as being something that was actually inside you that had to be... uh, cast out. So I guess in a way that 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 sort of possession isn't it in a way. Um so for example in one spell against nightmares the uh 
goddess Isis is called upon in that instance to protect a sleeper and, and is sent to drive out all the things that are inside the person um, to make them feel better. Oh, and we have another really cool, yeah, it's, it, it, it's a cool spell where it's clearly to help somebody who's having stomach problems. And in that one, again, various gods are called upon to help and you have to do particular gestures and use particular materials. And then it says, and then the being that's inside you, the nasty thing inside you will leave as a wind from your behind. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of these demons do quite nasty things, don't they? What would you say is the kind of the on the on your database? What would you say is the either like, the scariest or or the, the nastiest? Oh, some of them get really nasty. I mean, some of them eat your shadow. Some of them will rip out your heart. Um, there's some some ones that will try to cut cut you up uh, and everything. But usually those are only if they're really bad. I, I suppose for the Egyptians, probably the scariest ones are the ones that caused plague because because that would affect so many people at once. And uh, that must have been absolutely terrifying. And those are oftentimes described also as, as passers-by and those who come on the winds and who surround the house. So again, this idea in their heads of these sort of invisible anonymous hordes coming rushing through I presume you know villages on the wind and coming that that you can't stop you've mentioned the objects that um, had these these images on what other sources and, and, and evidence of these things do do we have we have also um, uh, the spells which name them as well some of them so we have names like uh, they're really wonderful names actually the sad voiced one uh, one who eats shadows, the wanderer, demolisher. My, one of my favorites is equalizer, he whose face is fiery. And we also have descriptions of them. So um, we have ones, you who draw out the heart, who weaken the knees. You who have come in the darkness, who have entered stealthily, her nose turned backwards, her head turned around. And... Uh, we also have um, descriptions, again, of, of them and, and what they do as well. So the ones who cause, you know, pounding in the head or uh, cause leakages, <laughs> various orifices. Um, I mean, not a lot of studies been done on this, has it? I mean, this is the first time I'd heard about this sort of other side to, you mean, you hear about the the gods and goddesses, but mm. not so much about this this side of things. Why is that, do you think? I think it's because, again, most of them are recorded in images rather than texts. So it's a lot easier to study something if you have a label and a name for it. Uh, whereas these ones that were drawn have never really been systematically studied. Um, it's also a little bit about of the privileging of religion associated with the elite and the royal and the temple sphere over the religion of everyday life, which again is more difficult to get to. Um, the objects upon which these were inscribed are oftentimes not as pretty. They're not you know, made of gold. And in the, the same kind of version, I mean, Tutankhamun wears a uraeus. All the pharaohs had a uraeus on their heads. Theirs would have been in gold. Well, people also had access to a uraeus, which is a rearing cobra, representative of a very, um, of uh, sort of an avatar of the, the idea of a very protective 
destructive goddess who would punish all enemies. People had, for example, in the New Kingdom, figurines made of clay. So they're much more simple. They're oftentimes found broken as well. And when you find a fragment of something, it's more difficult to study and get to. So, And it really needs to be done systematically. I mean, we found over 4,000 individual uh, entries. That was only on 200 objects. I was going to ask that, actually, do you think you've exhausted the number? (laughs) We haven't even started. That's not even the complete thing. All we did was we looked at four kinds of objects. That's it. That's it. And we didn't even complete those. So we haven't completed the headdress. We haven't completed the wands. Wow. So there are thousands and thousands then by the sounds of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things we wanted to look at is which exactly what you asked before, which ones stay, which ones go. And you can't know that until you actually collect all the data. And then you can start seeing if there's any patterns That was Kasia Spakowska. To find out more about the project, visit demonthings.com. Kasia's event, as part of the Being Human Festival, takes place at Swansea Museum this Saturday, the 18th of November, from 11am to 12.30pm. And you can find out more details about this and the other events taking place at beinghumanfestival.org. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. And now let's join our website assistant, Rachel Dinning, who's been speaking to the archaeologist, Dan Pascoe. I'm here with Dan Pascoe, a maritime archaeologist who specialises in the investigation of historic shipwrecks. One of Dan's recent projects involved carrying out an evaluation on the wreck of the London, a warship that sank off the coast of Southend in the 17th century. The wreck of the ship was discovered in 2005 and some of the items on board will be going on display in an upcoming exhibition. So Dan, would you be able to tell us a bit about the history of the ship before it sank and sort of why it was built and what it was used for? Well, Rachel, uh, the London was a warship, as you've already said, and it was a second-rate man of war, which was built in 1656. So that was at a time when Oliver Cromwell, uh, the protectorate, was ruling England. The London later served under Charles II during the Restoration period. So she had an interesting career as a warship. She sadly, well, unfortunately for her, missed out on on a, a glorious service um, career in the Navy. She missed the first Anglo-Dutch War, and she blew up at the beginning of the second Anglo-Dutch War. Uh, she mainly served as a flagship in places like the Downs, the English Channel, and in the Baltic. But I guess her uh, biggest claim to fame is uh, bringing back uh, Charles II from Holland and restoring him to the throne. And the London made up this fleet. And the London actually brought back his brother, James. 
Oh, amazing. Um, so how long was she in action, roughly, before she she actually sank? Well, she was built in or launched in 1656 and then she wrecked in 1665. And what can you tell us about the moment that she sank? What what were the circumstances surrounding this? Well, it was a, ter- a terrible um, accident, as, as most shipwrecks are. But uh, it wasn't because of a stormy weather or being in battle. She was um, heading out of the, the Medway and she was um, in the Thames estuary waiting to uh, waiting for the flood tide to uh, take her up to pick up the Admiral further upriver. And there was a catastrophic explosion, which we think was probably in the main magazine. Um, an accident occurred on on board, maybe with with, you know, they had candle lights or there was a spark that that ignited the gunpowder and she blew up. And I believe there were significant casualties from the explosion, was there? Yes. So there was there was about 325 people on board and there was only 25 survivors. So, yeah, there was a huge loss of life. Samuel Pepys at the time, the news got back to him on the 8th of March, the day after she wrecked. And he describes in his diary and he says, about 24 and a woman that was in the roundhouse and coach was saved the rest being above 300, drowned, the ship breaking all in pieces with 80 pieces of brass ordnance. So he was really um, disturbed by the, by the loss of life. But actually what he was you know, really uh, um, upset about was this ship that had blown up with you know, a wonderful um, assemblage of bronze cannons. The London was one of only four ships to have a full arsenal of bronze cannons at the time. They're very expensive and they didn't have too many bronze guns. So he was, he was, you know, he must have been thinking at the time, you know, it was a terrible loss of life, but how am I going to, you know, get these 80 bronze guns back? Um, and have we managed to get some of these bronze guns back now? Have you found them in your excavation of the site? Um, unfortunately, we haven't. But at the time, they, the ordnance port, board quickly arranged salvage operations and they managed to recover quite a few guns um, just after the wrecking. Um, on the 17th of March, it was reported that they had recovered four of the demi-culverins. These are kind of upper gun deck guns and two smaller guns, which probably were on the, the quarter deck. And later on that year, by the end of October, they, uh, divers were employed using a diving bell and they managed to recover another 18 guns. And I mean, it's terrible diving in the Thames you know, at this time, can you imagine what it was like in the 17th century? So these were divers way back then, hundreds of years ago, going and searching for this this site. Yes, but they weren't they weren't using the equipment that we have today. They they had they had this uh, you know a, a kind of makeshift bell. There's no breathing apparatus as such. They would have just gone down in this bell that held and you know air within it, and they were literally scrabbling around you know, at the bottom of the bell, trying to feel for uh, for these guns. So it's amazing that they managed to recover 18. Unfortunately, today, um, we haven't found any bronze guns, but we have found some, you know, wonderful art- artefacts associated with, with the guns. Okay, amazing. So uh, do you want to sort of expand on some of the discoveries that have been made recently? Sure. Well, if I first of all explain that the London is actually quite a complex site, it isn't just one single site, it's actually two. Um, there was a catastrophic explosion, and we we have two sites now. Site one, that's where it originally blew up, and then site two, which was discovered later, and this is 400 meters upstream from site one, and this is where we've been excavating. 
and it's it's a bit like the Mary Rose. We have a section of the side of the ship um, uh, surviving from the main gun deck down to close to the bottom of of the ship, and in the kind of the penultimate um, season of of the excavation, we found the gun deck with a complete gun carriage um, still on the deck next to the next to the gun port. And with the carriage, we found all of the um, gunner's equipment that would have been used to manoeuvre, fire and load the gun. The only thing missing um, was the actual gun itself. And we think that the gun um, that should have been with the carriage is one of the guns that was recovered in, I think, 2005. So in 2005, five guns were recovered from the site. It was a kind of a um, an investigation to try and work out which one of the guns could have gone with the carriage that we that we found and recovered. So you know, it was a great detective story as well as being you know an archaeological excavation. So where did you come into this? Where how did you get involved with the the project? It's a, a project that was funded by Historic England and and managed by an, another company called Cotswold Archaeology, a commercial archaeology company, and. They were working closely with the licensee, who's called Steve Ellis, and his wife, Carol Ellis, and friend, uh, Steve Meddle. And uh, Steve Ellis was diving the site frequently and discovering that lots was being uncovered. And obviously, something needs to be done about it because the material that was being uncovered was deteriorating. So Historic England put the wreck on the at-risk register, which prioritizes work on the site. And they you know, put together a project to excavate it so we could understand more about the London before it deteriorates. And what have sort of been the biggest findings for you? What What's the biggest find for you so far? Or what's really important about this site? Well, the most exciting uh, finds for me, because I'm interested in, you know, the ordnance of the ship, so that's the guns on board. When, when Steve Ellis, uh, who's the licensee, discovered the edges of a gun carriage emerging from from the from the silts um and then when when we looked at it closer we realized it wasn't just the the gun carriage it was all the associated equipment that goes with it and then when we dug down deeper we found that it was on the deck i mean you don't often find such remarkably preserved artifacts still in their original location on the ship so it can tell us so much about you know how these guns were used, or how the crew would have used them and operated them, the amount of equipment that was used in loading and firing these guns. So it was a, just a wonderful assemblage of, of artifacts. And really, we're only kind of just uh, scratching the surface. We ex- excavated a very small area, but found you know hundreds and hundreds of artifacts in this in this one area of, of the gun deck. So expanding a bit on these guns, then, how did they function back in the 17th century? You know, what does, what does what you found tell us about how they were used at the time? So the London was a second rate. It was a big warship. It had 76 guns on board. The ones, uh, the, the gun deck that we found was the main gun deck. So it would have had the heaviest, heaviest guns. These were 24-pounder and 32-pounder guns. So extremely heavy pieces of equipment. They would have weighed, you know, between two and two and a half tonnes. And they would have taken a lot of equipment to move them. So they've had to have a number of men operating these. And each man, you know, part of the, the gun crew would have had a, a different job. And we, we found, you know, different equipment um, that was used to uh, manoeuvre the, the guns, um, uh, pulley, um, you know, 
gun tackle that was used to run the guns in and out. We found uh, rammer heads, which are used to ram down the um, the charge and the shot. Um, so it enables you to understand how much work and how strenuous it would have been to to use these weapons. But this is what they were there to do. This was their job. It was a warship. Their primary objective was for fighting. Um, as well as, you know, equipment associated with the big guns, we also found next to the, next to the carriage a chest full of um, bandoliers with these little uh, powder boxes. And they were uh, used for the small arms, so the muskets. And on each bandolier, there would have been these would have been 12 powder boxes and they were they held a single charge for loading um, muskets so not only did they have weapons for you know firing at the ship um, they had weapons for fighting at close quarters so when two ships come together you would have men you know sharpshooters shooting at the enemy and this would have been more close range so it wasn't just about fighting from distance it was was about coming close to the enemy ship firing your broadsides and then and then also having your sharpshooters shooting down at, down below at close quarters or if you were boarded you would have these small arms to fight you know um people coming on board your ship yeah you can really sort of picture in your head how like the battle would have unfolded like it, you know it could have started from they would have been up close to each exactly. other, I imagine. Very, you know, exactly. <laughs> Which is not what you necessarily think when you think of sort of a warship. I don't know, like not these <laughs> you think days, of sort anyway. Of, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so I don't know if you actually mentioned. So we know that it, an explosion took place the day that the ship sank. Um, do we know what caused this explosion? Well, to cause such a catastrophic explosion, it would have to be the gunpowder on board. And the London was carrying 300 barrels of gunpowder. And this would have been kept in the main magazine, which would have been deep in the hold of the ship up towards the bow. Um, we know that from the evidence that the London is now two sites. So this must have completely ripped through the ship, you know, parting big sections. Because site two, which we've been working on, is, you know, 20 metres in length and, and, you know, eight metres wide. And that consists of, you know, the main gun deck down to the bottom of the ship. So it's a large, um, substantial chunk. So it would have to be a huge explosion to to break such a big part of the ship away and then for that to float um, up tide. So, you know, this it wasn't a, um, a tiny accident. This was a catastrophic accident. In, in somewhere where, where they should have been more careful, you would have thought. You wouldn't want to have been, you know, playing around with, um, you know, with candles or light that wasn't, you know, protected in, in a lantern. It's difficult to imagine what the men would have been doing at the time, knowing, you know, they were getting the ship ready. It was They were about to head off, um, you know, to fight in the second Anglo-Dutch war. The ship wasn't quite ready. They're obviously putting stores away. And then there was this, you know, massive explosion. So it's difficult to understand why there was this carelessness at the time. But this wasn't uncommon. You know, this is, you know, this happened after the London 2. So um, I think it it changed the way they kind of, you know, dealt with uh, the gunpowder and how it was stored and how, because it was deep in the bottom of the ship, there's no light getting down there. So you would have to have candlelight. But then they started making light rooms within the ship. And these were, um, you know, separated from the powder room, um, you know, through, a, a you know, a glass kind of lantern, a, a glass screen. 
so that naked flame could never be exposed to to the gunpowder but it's no one knows what would uh, what, you know what happened but you can say that there was a you know an accident negligence probably and uh, which led to this you know catastrophic explosion can you tell from the archaeological evidence you have would would they have known what was happening or would it have been a very quick sort of death for the people on board? I think I think for most people, it would have been um, over very quickly. Um, we know that they were getting the ship ready. So most people would have been below decks, putting stores away, you know, you know, hard at work, busy on board. Um, the survivors were found. There were 25 survivors and they were found clinging to the roundhouse. And this would have been at the stern of the ship high, high up. Uh, so they were just lucky that they were in the, the higher parts of the ship furthest away from the bow, which where the explosion would have been. So um, I imagine as soon as the ship exploded, the, the bow would have been blown off and, you know, water just pours in and, and the ship sinks pretty quickly. But it, it was it's fairly shallow in, in that part of the of the Thames. And the, the roundhouse, the bit at the stern, remained above water because it was just sticking up. So um, that, you know, that allowed those that did survive to cling on until until they were rescued. I don't exactly know how it works for you as, a, as an archaeologist, but do you actually go down? Have you like dived down and actually seen the site in that way? Yes. So to make all these kind of fantastic recoveries and investigate the wreck, you have to be hands on. You have to be down there. Um, it is a pretty um, perilous place to dive. It's right on the edge of the, the main shipping lane into in and out of London, the port of London. So you get lots of big ships passing you by. It's the Thames. And the Thames, you probably know, the Thames is very kind of murky uh, and silty. So when you're down there, quite often it's well most of the time it's pitch black uh, if you're lucky it's it's clear enough that you have you know half a meter of visibility that you can see what you're doing but most of the time you're sc- scrabbling around on your hands and knees feeling feeling what you're doing rather than actually seeing it um so it's an exciting it's an, ex- an exciting place to work for an archaeologist although it is you know it's a very hostile environment um, in these in these types of environments that are, you know, um, silty and muddy, you get the best preservation. So it may be the worst place to dive, but it's the best place to find these types of shipwrecks. And and it's it's these horrible conditions that preserve the ship. Oh right, why is why is that? So you've so you've got lots of silt and mud. Um, it's exactly what the the Mary Rose was was preserved in very thick, gloopy clay. And that creates this, it, it covers the wreck, it creates a blanket, it, this anaerobic environment, so no oxygen can penetrate, you know, the, um, the material on board, the ship itself. And that, uh, that creates a seal and it just, just, you know, preserves it. It's only the parts that stick above the mud that they, they deteriorate. So um, everything below the surface is in immaculate condition, it's wonderful. Um, so I believe you've you've brought some of the items from the ship up, and these are going to be on display in this exhibition that's coming up. Um, so what what is it that the public can see? We have, as I've said before, we've um, we have this amazing assemblage of um, artifacts associated with the ordnance, the guns, so the the the, the cannons on board, 
We also have the small arms with these powder chambers and bandoliers, which are made from wood and leather. We also, uh, one of the divers found this uh, leather book cover, which had gold um, kind of leaf embossed on the, on the leather. So, and leather shoes, you know, that the sailors would have worn. Um, Steve Ellis, the licensee, found a whole pile of leather shoes. Obviously, were not what they were wearing at the time. This, these were spares that they were carrying. Uh, yeah, there were candles that we found. It's amazing a candle can stay preserved. It seems like the kind of thing you'd imagine would deteriorate and stuff. Exactly, exactly. That's, or float. That's really cool. Float away, <laughs> you know, because when we, ex- I remember excavating one of the candles and as soon as I freed it from the mud, it started to float. So it must have, when it when the ship wrecked, it must have been, you know, locked within the three dimensions of the ship. And then as all the kind of silty mud poured in, it then, you know, sealed it in there. Um, so, yeah, things like that. Very lucky to survive. But the London is full of it. We just excavated a very small area of the ship. And it just shows how much potential there is for, you know, thousands of artifacts to survive. So what the public are going to see is a very small uh, percentage of what's actually there. And really, um, it would be wonderful if, if the whole ship was was excavated, just like the Mary Rose, because, you know, we're only getting a glimpse of, um, you know, life on board um, the London. And um, this is giving us snippets and clues to what it would have been like. Imagine if we excavated the whole ship, we'd be able to know so much more. Um, and then I think final question. I was just curious, like for you as a maritime archaeologist, why is it important that we preserve these historic sites and we look at them in detail? Well, for me, um, shipwrecks are special sites because quite often they're, I mean, they are a time capsule. Um, it wasn't meant to happen. So what you find is exactly the moment, a snapshot in time when that ship um, sank and wrecked. So you have it's not it's not material that's been thrown away or discarded this is this is material that is being used um at the time of sinking um so it can tell you so much more about the people on board and 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 you start to learn about um you know what you know the the culture of the time was um you know what they had to do as a job on board um i mean what's what's interesting for me with with the london um it's teaching us about the the culture of the of the english navy or the british navy it's if you imagine nelson's time they were extremely uh disciplined and strict uh, and professional but from the from the from the london what we're finding is that with all of these artifacts that we found next to the gun carriage and all the equipment that was associated with that gun, we also found lots more equipment that would have been used for all of the other guns on, on the ship. And the fact that we found the bandoliers, uh, these were the, the, the artifacts associated with the small arms, these should have been all stored down below. Now, the London left... Uh, uh, it's dry dock on the 23rd. It was, well, stores went into the London on the 23rd of February and it wrecked on the 7th of March. Why hadn't all these stores been put away at this time? So it, it's, it's telling us that it's not as disciplined as the Navy in the, in, in the 18th century. It's not as professional. And I mean, this is exactly what Pepys was trying to do later on um, around the latter 1670s. He was trying to make the Navy more professional. He was trying to make um, officers be trained 
rather than you know just kind of inheriting a position um so yeah it's 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 telling us something about the development of the, the navy we weren't quite there yet there was still still r- lots of room for improvement um and we don't have many shipwrecks from this period this is a perfect opportunity to learn about the english navy from this particular time period thanks very much for talking to us today dan for all our UK-based listeners who are interested in finding out more, Dan will be giving a talk about the London warship at the University of London on Wednesday the 22nd of November. The talk accompanies an exhibition of some of the ship's artefacts, which are on display from Friday the 17th of November to Monday the 11th of December as part of the Being Human Festival of Humanities. So that was Dan Pascoe talking to Rachel Dinning. And you can find out more about the exhibition at beinghumanfestival.org. Okay, well that's about it for today, but please do join us on Monday, where we'll be joined by Charles Spencer to explore the story of Charles II's miraculous escape. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.